Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is... Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge, and this is Skylines, the City Metric podcast. In fact, it's the it's the Skylines Christmas special. Technically, this is this should be the last episode you hear before Christmas. I'm here with uh, with a very exciting guest who's new to the podcast, but who many of you will be intimately familiar with. I'm sure. Mr. Jay Foreman. Hello, Hello, John. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for coming and doing our Christmas special. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me on. I should say I'm quite excited to finally meet you in the flesh because yours is a name that turns up all the time whenever we're doing research for our videos about cities and so on. Oh, it's another John Elledge article. This one's really useful. Uh, yeah, I think it's just too many years of pouring absolute nonsense of nerdery onto the internet. Like the number of times I've I've like thought of a question, thought, has anyone written about that? And Google's for the answer, and it's oh yeah, I wrote that <laughs> four years ago or seven years ago. Do you find it reassuring that you know you've written something and then when you check it afterwards, go oh yeah, that's the thing I was looking for? No, because a lot of the time I didn't find the answer. I just managed to spin 800 words out of the quest for it. So it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm any better informed at the end than the beginning. But it's like, here, here, here is some amusing, entertaining nonsense about it. Sometimes you can just splurge your thoughts and then decide afterwards, actually, what was the question that I was asking to which this splurge of my thoughts is the answer? And then it looks like you really know your stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really useful trick which you, you can do on the internet. Anyway, we are recording this on on it's election day. We are. So so I'm a bit hyper. I've got election fever. I've got on my voting trousers. What colour are your voting trousers? They're the same as my regular trousers. I'm wearing a pair of black jeans, but because it's election day, you know, they're special voting trousers. special voting trousers. Yeah. Because I was going to say, like, you know, if you wore red trousers, that could suggest support for Labour. But paradoxically, people <laughs> wear red trousers. Do not tend to vote Labour, do they? It's true. Yeah, it's weird. But, you know, as this is Election Day, and you will be hearing this some days after Election Day, we don't know the results, so we're going to have to slightly fake it. Should we record uh, several different versions? Okay, let's do like, so it's... Should we start with uh, the obvious? Here we go. Can you believe Joe Swinson managed to turn it around at the last minute? Wow, no one saw that coming. 500 seats. I know. That's going to go down in the history books, isn't it? Well, showed us all. I just can't believe she won France. (laughs) Okay, we could do... It's really... It's nice that, you know, Labour came from behind to win... To win Chelsea on this case, uh, that's the, even I can't make that sound. That's Do you know that's actually quite plausible because they did win Kensington. This is this election. is why I trailed off halfway through because I was like, 
Not only am I not certain this is in any way funny, I'm not certain this is in any way implausible, and thus, is it, is it even worth saying? Well, this is the experience I've had with this election, is that it's a lot harder to make light of it, it's a lot harder to make it funny, because it's an election, it's in the middle of winter, which is unusual, and it's an election that nobody wants, and it's an election that's not going to solve anything, like, even if you're a massive Brexiteer, even you're not happy about this election. So let alone, you know, massive Romaniacs like me who just despair that we're having a general election instead of a people's vote. But maybe that's a miserable rant for another podcast. I don't know. We love a miserable rant rant. <laughs> we do. I, I think the, the Brexiteers are probably the people who are most happy with this election because firstly, they're probably going to win. Secondly, this message has been pushed that if they just give the Tories a majority, they will get Brexit done. Uh, perhaps by the time this podcast comes out, the Tories will have won their huge majority. They will be going around saying they've got Brexit done. It's a lie, of course. Like, we're going to have years of trade talks, but some of these guys do not necessarily appreciate that. So I think there are some people on that side of the fence who are quite looking forward to it. I do not, as of, of noon on Election Day, get the sense that there is that much excitement in in Romania. No, I think the most likely outcome from this election is the thing we're all expecting, which is a sort of... Tory majority that you know doesn't even please the Tories that much which will result in Brexit continuing to sort of limp on unsolved for who knows how many decades oh it's making me miserable and at Christmas time as well yeah I'm going I'm going to put it on the record that I think the Tories are going to get a majority of 50 I mean it's going to be the biggest majority since 1987 I think it's going to be quite bad Labour going to have the worst results since the early 80s I'm saying all this in full knowledge that by the time you're listening to this you will know whether I'm right or wrong I just kind of want it on the record. I feel like this is my first opportunity to make a prediction of what I genuinely think is going to happen without worrying that it's going to somehow upset the result. Because, you know, I've been holding back for days saying that I think Labour is going to do really badly because I don't want to tell people that because then, just in case they really did have a chance of getting in, some people might, you know, they'll read lots of tweets like that and go, well, there's no point turning up then. So I don't want to be part of the problem. I don't want to, you know send negative messages out there. However, since you people listening know the result, here's what I think is going to happen. Labour will do badly. Jeremy Corbyn, having lost two elections, will stand down, be replaced by Emily Thornberry, and Labour will then win the next general election, but not very strongly. Do you want to do another version in which you predict like a Labour victory or something and then we just kind of... I'd like to do another 50 versions where I predict, you know, every single possible outcome and you select the correct one. Well, let's not do that. Let's get on with our lives. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to get you on the podcast, actually, there's a more specific reason which we're going to come to in the second half. But but the the kind of the, the ostensible reason is that you do a series of YouTube videos called Map Men. And uh, other things around that kind of area in which you kind of explain stuff about the world and maps. It's all kind of like, if you're a city metric reader, it's the kind of stuff you're interested in, really. And I've watched a couple of these things and I thought it'd be good to get you on the podcast. You know, we probably like have some audience in common. And then I went to your YouTube page and you've got half a million subscribers. That's a new thing. When I started making videos about sort of infrastructure and town planning and so on, you know, there was just a couple of hundred of them. But apparently, as, as you and I both now know, there's... There's nerds out there that really but like city planning. This, po- this podcast does not have half a million subscribers. I should be I should be asking to come on your videos. I've <laughs> done this all wrong. I have got this the wrong way around. Anyway, like why did you why did you pick these topics to kind of become a sort of you know online video nerd? Well, about? it all started in, in the olden days. It was um, almost exactly ten years ago today. We put out a video. The first episode of Unfinished London was in 2009. It was all about the Northern Heights project to expand the Northern Line beyond Edgware. And the reason we made a video about that is because Edgware is where I'm from. And this is one very specific story that me and my friend Paul that make the videos, we knew that story quite well. 
because we went past those unfinished arches on the school bus all the time and we thought this is a great topic for a one-off video however to make it look like part of a series in order to make our little audition piece for so-called proper telly look more impressive we we gave it a series name we called it unfinished london implying that there's more stories out there to tell but we didn't actually intend at that time to make any more videos However, people really enjoyed that first episode about the Northern Line, so we decided about a year later, well, all right, maybe we will make another one. Maybe this time we'll have a better chance at getting into proper telly. Ten years later, that hasn't happened, but what has happened now is you can now make videos on YouTube and, and that can be your job. You don't need to please executives and TV people and so on. So I have a limited frame of reference for what YouTube success looks like. like I, I know that like there are people who like you know, making millions and buying houses off the back of it. I know this is a whole thing. But what I mean is I don't know. 500,000 people sounds like a lot to me. The, is that a lot? Well, it depends on who you compare it to because there's the likes of PewDiePie that's got 7 billion subscribers. There, are, there they, are only 7 billion people on the planet. I, I know, mean, right? like, what's, <laughs> they, what's um, going on there? There might be some fraud. Uh, basically, there's a... Uh, you know, measuring success on YouTube is like measuring success in the real world. There's all sorts of different ways of doing it. You can either go by subscriber numbers, which in real life is more like a measure of how long your channel's existed for, or you can go by uh, how many views each new video tends to get, or how much interaction you get, or how much your CPM is, which is a very specific measurement of what sort of person is watching your video. So the weird thing is, I looked at my demographics on my YouTube channel. It tells me exactly who's watching, and apparently, something ridiculous like 98% of my audience is male. Now, I'm not very happy about that because I don't think there's anything about my videos that says you need to have a penis in order to watch this. I don't know what I'm doing to put off half the planet. However, unfortunately, the YouTube algorithm actually prefers when you only have one type of viewer because it makes a lot more money for advertising if you can say everyone watching these videos is a, a young male between the ages of 13 and 20 something. That is what YouTube prefers to see, whereas I'd much rather see people of all different ages and genders. So on a quite early episode of this podcast, we had uh, Caroline Criado Perez, the writer and feminist campaigner on. And she's, she's got a lot of plaudits this year for a book, the name of which she's going to kill me. I can't remember the name of a book. Anyway, it's a great book. Uh, you can buy it. Just look her up. It's quite uncommon. Though. But she, she came on this podcast to talk about gender in city planning, because there are a lot of things like when city planning decisions are made, it's often not considered that like, you know, men and women have slightly different needs. Like women are more likely to be going around the, the city with a, a pushchair, for example, or to feel unsafe in particular environments at night. And this stuff is just kind of not being considered. So she was saying all this, and she was saying it was annoying that so many of the people in city planning tended to be men. And I, as an off-hand way, said, yeah, it's a quite a male topic, isn't it, so infrastructure? Like, it tends to be men who get really into maps. And she was furious with me. She spent the next three months endlessly sending me articles in which women sort of talked about their love of maps. This is the I thing got in so much trouble with that. But I've always thought of it as a relatively male topic. Well, women. it shouldn't be. There's nothing about city planning that should matter more to men than women. But unfortunately... I agree with you only because I've got these horrible stats on my own YouTube channel to prove it. It's a stereotype that really should be on its way out. However, at the moment, it seems, at least for the for now, more men care about it. And I don't know why that is, and I'm not particularly happy about it. I would say there are some women who, who I've, I've met through doing City Metric who are very into the sort of topics we write about. Uh, shout out to a couple of them now. There's Marion Craig, who's just written an excellent piece about her love of the Class 43 high-speed train. 
There's Holly Jones in Bristol, who's very into bus planning. There's Miriam Merwich from the Labour Party, who uh, I can't even remember what she's into, but like every time I meet her, she's like t- delightful about this podcast. So I think you should probably hear this. And I just like to say hello to them. But yeah, it's like I have sort of recently realised that there are a lot of it's it's not as male as I probably assumed it was but it does kind of feel like that that stereotype has some basis in reality doesn't it i wonder if i'm not helping things by having my series be called map men yeah and i gave it that name well actually it was mark the other guy mark cooper jones who came up with this title it's meant to be a pun on mad men but the reason it has that name is because we talk about maps and we are men it just it alliterates however if you're a woman on youtube looking for something to watch and you see a, a video called map men you might subconsciously think, well, I guess that's not for me then. And again, I've got the the stats to rather unfortunately back it up. There's one of my videos, one in the Mat Men series. It claims that the viewers are 100% male. That, that can't, mean, that be, can't right, be right, true, but you know, no. it's if that's close to the truth, it means we're doing something wrong. I think there's, there's it's probably also worth saying there is a sort of there is another way in which those figures are uh, sort of highlight sexist patriarchal attitudes, and it's that I. Th- think as I understand a lot of these algorithms that kind of identify people by gender they default to male well that's got to be changed yeah someone suggested to me that but um, like there was a thing on when when people were looking at this kind of stuff on their on the twitter followings like corporate accounts were being categorized as male for example and that's you know obviously that's not a company can't have a penis that's not that's not how it works I once bought for my girlfriend at the time uh, she's now my fiance uh, I bought her um, for her birthday a leatherman a multi-tool and it came in this gift package that said, wonderful gifts for him. Well, hang on, how do you know, just because it's a multi-tool, that it's going to be used by a man? I mean, it's bad enough that they have these advertising campaigns that imply it's for men, but it's pretty awful when the actual product itself comes in a thing that says, for him, that I want to give to her. I feel like we're talking about a lot of things that weren't what we intended to talk about. <laughs> yeah, right? I came we, on to talk about yeah. geeky map stuff, and we're on. Yeah, the, we've moved on to feminism. How, how, yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, I mean, we're we're just cool guys, really, aren't we? We're just we're just showing how <laughs> how in touch we are with with gender issues. But yes, okay, let's talk about map men. I was watching a couple of them this morning. I watched one where you're talking about uh, projections and how the Mercator projection is wrong. I particularly enjoyed the little caption that pops up halfway through it where you say, yeah, we did actually genuinely argue about this for ages. That is true. Mark Cooper-Jones and I were arguing about this. Uh, So Mark Cooper-Jones, unlike me, actually has some geography background. He's got the credentials. He spent years being a real geography teacher. And he genuinely loves geography. Uh, I mean, I love geography too, but he's actually got a GCSE and a, you know, a proper degree in it. So whenever we write our scripts together, it tends to be Mark that corrects my mistakes and tells me, you know, it's not called colouring in, it's called shading and so on. And we did argue about whether the Mercator projection or the Gore-Peters projection is better. So which conclusion did you come to? We decided to be amicable about it and we said that there is no right answer because, well, the point that I made in the video was ask yourself what is the purpose of having a map on a classroom wall? Is it so that people can navigate the ocean using rum lines or is it so that kids can understand the world around them? And I think it's more important that you show the scale of Africa than the precise shape of Africa. Although I do concede it does look really ugly. Yeah, it, I mean, like the Mercator projection, which is the one that kind of distorts the the size of the land around the poles, makes Greenland look massive when it is, you know, only quite big. It is just better looking, isn't it? This is part of the problem. Yeah, it turns out that the best maps we found are the ones that are sort of, they compromise and they go halfway in between. And it's really interesting, all the comments we've had um, underneath the video from people that are much more expertly than we are, saying, oh, you missed out this, you should have talked about the Robinson projection. I don't know what that is, but it keeps coming up. Yeah, there's a lot of projections that pop up on that video that I'd never seen before. Like the one that kind of looks like one of those 
games you have as a kid where you kind of have to like put hexagons next to each other. Oh yeah, yeah it looks like um, I mean? like you've unfolded a, a cube. Yeah, it looks like a game of blockbusters. Yeah. Well, we That's deliberately it. tried yeah. to find the uh, the weirdest and worst projections. And that was a lot of fun. I think the one I was actually most taken with. And I worry that this is this is me setting off down the road to becoming a flat earther. Their map, <laughs> where you know you put the North Pole in the middle and Antarctica is just this white bit round the edge, that's quite aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, it's and been relatively done for terrible, accurate. It's been right? done for terrible reasons, but it is quite wonderful to look at. And also practical in the like in practice, you're never going to need to like find your way across Antarctica. Probably, I'm not. I'm not limiting you if you want to do that. But like that's that's not a thing you are likely to need. So, you know, kind of putting the distortion in a place where it's not going to affect anything is, is not a bad thing, right? Yeah, even a stopped clock is right twice a day. You know, even a flat earther can accidentally stumble upon quite a useful distortion. Although the difference is they're not claiming it's a distortion. They're sort of rather worryingly saying this really is what a map of the world looks like. OK, before we move on, what shape is the Earth? It's sort of oblong, I think. Okay, cool. Tell us about some of your other videos you've done on Matt, man. What are your, your other favourites? We had one about the North-South divide, which has caused a lot of arguments in the comment section. And um, I think we're doing something right if we've got just as many Northerners as we have Southerners claiming that we got it wrong. Okay. Well, I mean, there is another possible explanation, but we'll, we'll, we'll park that. Oh, you mean well, this so-called Midlands? <laughs> no, I just meant like maybe you're just wrong about everything. But what, what was the kind of thrust of that, of that video? It's a really fascinating topic, and um, if you're trying to make something go viral, the North versus South argument tends to do really, really well. And there was one thing made by Us versus Them, which is um, a combination of Tom Scott and Rob Manuel, whose name might be pronounced Rob Manuel, I'm never sure. Um, it is Rob Manuel. I should say Us versus Them, City Metric regular Ed Jefferson is an Us versus Them alumni. So if you See, it turns out that the internet is a very small... And, uh... yeah, there's only about eight people in London. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so, so they made a thing that was intended to go viral where you answer some questions and then it gives you a score based on how north or south you are. It's a fantastic thing because people will share it if it's accurate and they'll share it if it's inaccurate as well. And it turns out people get really passionate about the north-south divide. And so with a similar thought, we thought, well, let's make a video on that topic. Well, what we said was um, if you ask people on the street, where do you think the north-south divide is? depends hugely where you already are. So Londoners think it's Watford, Geordies think it's Sunderland, and only people in the Midlands tend to acknowledge that the Midlands exists. Yeah, yeah, the Midlands gets quite upset about that. Actually, I'm, I'm just listing people if they're involved in City Metric at some point. Anyway, Tom Forth, who was a guest on the very first episode of this podcast, in fact, is a professional Yorkshireman who's written a load of fantastic you stuff. He could be a professional about. Yorkshireman. Oh, trust me, Tom, is a professional Yorkshireman. But he's lived in lots of different cities the last few years. He did a fantastic piece for us about um, how... Birmingham's traffic problem means that it's effectively a smaller city than it looks like at, at rush hour because you just can't commute for more than about five miles out or something. But I remember the first time Tom was, when he first moved to the Midlands, Tom is from Leeds, was talking about how it's really weird that like Solihull is quite southern. Whereas you go to the other end of, of the combination, you go to Wolverhampton, it's quite sort of northern. It's like, Tom, have you just discovered the Midlands for the first time? <laughs> have you just realised that there is this other thing in the middle? It's either that or he's discovered where the North-South Divide is and it really does one right through the middle of the bullring. Yeah, that's that's probably it. OK, let's do one more video before we move on. What else? What else is good? What else should the listeners check out? If it's not on the topic of maps, I also have a series about politics that we did called Politics Unboring. So when we started politics that... Politics is never boring. What are you talking about? It's well, election see, I, day. I, I remember... Election day. When I was a teenager, I actually remember and rather miss when politics was quite boring, when the two yeah. main parties were kind of the same and, you know, you were voting based on competence and likability rather than any real difference in policies. And what's happened now is 
it's become so polarized that, you know, unboring is no longer what you need to do to politics. You need to unbatch it. Uh, but we made a video. Um, it was designed to be uh, shown in schools, and I'm very pleased to hear that some teachers have been showing it. It's meant to make politics look more exciting, and it's meant to have a message of positivity and, hey, kids, go out and vote. But as the years have gone on, it's now become much harder to be both neutral or positive about democracy. So that's why there have been some more recent episodes of Politics on Borings that have more of an angry bite to them. So, so I see think, if you can spot my mood like, change as the series goes on. It was democracy a bad idea? That kind of thing. <laughs> that's not a bad title for the Should next Should old people have the vote? I'm, I'm seriously asking. Uh, well, let's, It's let's, depressing, let's, isn't it? Because we'll of course the, the answer is yes. We'll, but, see what, we'll see what the result is. Actually, like, we ran a fantastic piece by... Um, I, I'm... I, I, this is turning out to be quite Christmas special in that I'm just like listing people who I've worked with in some capacity <laughs> over the years. Uh, but Ian Martin, who's the one of the writers in The Thick of It and The Death of Stalin and all those kind of projects and a pensioner, did a great piece for The New Statesman on how maybe we should just kind of cut the voting age off at the other end as well and say, like, once you're past 70, you don't get to vote anymore. Like, so it's just something you do in the middle of your life. Which did not get nearly as much shit as I was hoping given that this was meant to be a bit of viral content I must say but I think it's quite an interesting idea maybe like, because the sort of people that would normally be angry about it they um, they have better things to do than go online like us young whippersnappers that's probably it they're probably out sort of developing the wealth of the country by playing golf yeah. or something they're out playing bowls in the sunshine please mind the gap between the train and the Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, yeah, I said that there was actually another reason why I asked you onto the podcast. And there is, and it's that there is a man in Woking who has been trolling you for literally years, I think. It's only a few months, but it does feel like years. Oh, okay. But I should it, tell the story. Yes. Um, so I have a video online in my other life when I'm not making videos about town planning and infrastructure and so on. I'm a comedian and uh, I have a comedy song that I've done which is basically a list of every tube station in three and a half minutes. So um, I often get people commenting on that song and they say things like, ah, oh, you missed out such and such a station. And what I'll normally do is reply to them and say, no, I didn't. We checked. They're all in there. Or I might sometimes say, actually, more often I'll say that doesn't count. That's not a tube station. You know, they'll tell me I missed out something on the DLR or the overground. 
Anyway, in June, I had someone say, you missed out Woking. So I patiently replied and said, Woking is a national rail station, not a tube station. So even if it was in Greater London, which it isn't, uh, it would not be in this song. He then sent another reply. He says, well, um, you're correct. It's not technically a tube station, but um, I just have to correct you there, Mr. Foreman. Um, Woking is in Greater London. And I couldn't resist. Normally, you're supposed to just leave trolls alone. But I thought, this is a really simple argument. And he's really simply wrong. So I just told him, no, it, it's not. Woking has never been in Greater London. It's in Surrey. By the way, I urge you to check out a video that I've made, which is called Where Does London Stop? It's an eight-minute video that goes into excruciating detail of exactly what Greater London is, where the border is, and Woking is 15 miles outside it. Anyway, we carried on arguing about this for months. He just wouldn't stop. And the thing that I found so fascinating, it's basically a little exploration into how some humans can refuse to be wrong, even in the face of overwhelming maps. It kept me and my Twitter feed really entertained. But this is what I don't get. It's like, he is wrong. This is not, this is not one of those things where it's a matter of opinion. There is, there is a patch of land called Greater London. It has a boundary. Woking is on the wrong side of it. Yeah, this is what I find so entertaining. If we were having an argument, does Woking count as London? I mean, he just might have a chance at arguing, yeah, it's part of the commuter belt, it feels a bit like a suburb of London. You know, he's allowed to say that, even though I disagree with that. But that he was insisting that it's in Greater London, with a capital G and capital L, that's what kept me going. The fact that he was so simply wrong and so refusing to be wrong. It's, I, I urge you to check out my Twitter feed and watch this Woking Gate argument. It is fascinating. It is genuinely... like I did just kind of read this whole thing slightly open-mouthed and decide I wanted to get you on a podcast to talk about it because I was so <laughs> baffled by it. I'm coming um, to the... I mean, I can't quite decide even now, and I feel like I know this guy intimately well, I can't decide whether he's trolling, whether he knows full well that he's winding me up and he's wrong, or there just might be, if you look at his tweets... I think he really believes it. I think it's, you know, it's like when you meet an incredibly religious person. You cannot change their mind. You can't change this mm. guy's mind about working being in Greater London. He said a really interesting thing. One of his sentences was, I'm sorry, but I cannot say that working is not in Greater London any more than I can change the colour of my eyes. I mean, I responded and says, no, the changing your eye colour and changing your mind about who's in charge of the local council are not similar at all. But it does fascinate me. I think it opens up a wider question. Why do people feel so strongly about the identity of where they live and specifically where London stops? I know people take this very seriously. Mm. Is he... Sorry, I mean, that's that's a far more interesting question we'll get into in a moment. <laughs> but, like, when you think of this guy, do you think he might be very young or very old? In my or... head, he's young. I think of him as a little 15-year-old. But you're right, he could be... I mean, we don't even know if it's a he. Yeah, Well, we true. know about this person. Is I, the... Actually, you say that, but I, I feel confident this is a he. It feels like a he. Yeah, yeah let's face it. Right. Um, <laughs> well, we, all we know about him is he lives in Woking, and his name is um, NDCRD. I don't know what that stands for, or even if I've got the letters in the correct order. But he, he really fascinates mm. me, this guy. And you know what? There's a small part of me that will probably miss... If he eventually does relent and say, no, you're right, I've misunderstood what Greater London means, of course working is not in it, I'll be sad it's all over. Because I really enjoy the mental exercise of trying to argue back in such a way that he cannot possibly disagree, but being really excited knowing that he will. He will find a way, yeah. yeah. So where does London stop? What conclusion did you reach? Well, this is the thing. My research for the video and my practice arguing with him has made me realise that this is actually quite a hard question to answer. Where does Greater London stop? Everyone knows, except this guy. It's on the map. However, exactly what you judge to be London depends on so much, because it might be the M25 for some people, or it might be the area where you pick up London TV and radio, 
or it could be the London postcode, mm. or it could even be, you know, for some much older people, it's the county of London. Some people might say that places like Stanmore or Enfield, oh, they're not London, they're Middlesex. You know, these people still exist. Also, I think it's, I think there is an imbalance. I think areas to the north and west of London are more likely to think of themselves as Londony than areas to the south and east. I think the reason for that is that Middlesex has always been a London county, and, you know, Middlesex includes the county of London, whereas if you live in places like Kingston, it's never really felt like London until 1965, yeah. and even now, Kingston is the county town of Surrey. Yeah, when I was... So, I think there's another reason, actually. I mean, it's also the tube. Yeah. Got to the north and west far before anywhere else. But, yeah, when I before I was at City Metric, I used to be a contributing editor at Londonist, and there was any article on this kind of topic, many of which you've probably come across in your, your research for this stuff. Thanks for writing been, those articles, by yeah, the way. Yeah, they've been very helpful, I'm sure. But there was always a guy from Kingston saying, Kingston isn't in London, why are you talking about us? That happened a lot. And I'm sort of familiar with this kind of attitude because I grew up in Romford, which is northeast rather than southwest, but is very, very Essex. It's kind of culturally, very, it feels very Essex. It's still quite white. It's, it's politically quite different from London proper. It's true. There's so many graphs and maps you can look at where Havering doesn't really belong in the rest of Greater London. No. And that goes on to explain this Hexit campaign that nearly happened. Yeah, which was hilarious. I think we talked about Hexit on the podcast. The UKIP contingent on the local council tried to get Havering taken out of Greater London and to become a unitary authority in the county of Essex. And the Tories have actually run the council like, no, that's a really stupid thing to do because we'll be leaving a load of kind of shared systems. It's sort of creating a load of administrative work for no actual benefit. You would think that the residents they, of Havering that feel like they're culturally you know, in their soul a part of Essex, they should be happy because it still feels like Essex. They still have the word Essex on their envelopes. Yeah, they get... They get the best of both. But then do. again, if you're looking at people who are in favour of Brexit, the, the, you know, the idea of best of both, probably they don't really understand it as this well. Is, this is what confused me, because like all the arguments against Hexit double as arguments against Brexit. Exactly. Didn't, you know, they're on totally different sides. But yeah, so I think there is... So just if you're kind of thinking... Rather than kind of looking at actual sort of, you know, rules-based versions of what London is, like, you know, here's the Great London Boundary, here's the phone code, here's the postcode. I think there are kind of, if you kind of look at the sort of fluffier, more conceptual ideas, I think there is a sort of a thing that feels like proper London, which is zones one, two, maybe bits of three, even out to four occasionally. But, you know, it's the thing where, like, people will have sort of quite metropolitan attitudes they will kind of not think twice about like nipping to a drink in a different bit of town. They will kind of involve, be involved in the cultural life of the city. There is kind of that kind of London, which is a lot smaller than Greater London. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that particular London that you're referring to is I wasn't really aware of it until I quite recently moved to Enfield. So have Enfield, you moved out of it. And I have just so, discovered. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So because Enfield, it's technically in Greater London, and it is in London. However. It's only when I started living there that I realised it doesn't feel like part of London. I now, whenever I get the train, and it has to be a train now, not the tube, I feel like I've travelled far. And I feel like the architecture and the culture has changed. And I sort of, I realised that other people in the rest of London, they don't go to Enfield. They won't give Enfield a try because it's not on the tube and it really is far out. And I spend, unless I've got something very specific to do in central London... I don't really spend much time in London and I've recently become aware of this other London that you talk about where really it's, I guess it's the pre-1965 County of London boundary. But were you not aware, I mean you say you grew up in Edgware, were you not kind of, I mean that's in the sort of suburban London rather than proper London, isn't it? It is, but I was younger then. Ah, I sort of, um, well I lived, I grew up in Stanmore and then the first time that I actually lived in London outside my parents' house was I lived in, in Kilburn. 
and got to know Kilburn very well, I really liked it. And then when I moved again, I've now gone up to Enfield and I've realised that it's, uh, it is very different living on the very outskirts of London mm. as a grown up. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Like, so having grown up in, in Zone 6 on the eastern fringes of London, it's, as a kid, I was always slightly weirdly insecure about this. Like, no, it is London, honestly. <laughs> and, you know, as an adult, I realised that's kind of, that is true. Like, economically, it's part of London. A lot of people there commute into town. This time of year, people occasionally say, "Oh, you you going home for Christmas?" It's like, well, no, because it's at the end of the it's a ten mile drive away. It's not it's not something you need to kind of travel to and back to. It's a commute rather than like a journey. But in this other way, it's not London at all. Yeah, people get very emotional about it. Yeah. I remember one time I was trying to convince a friend to come and see me when I was still living in Stanmore, and he was saying, "That's not London. That doesn't count as London." And that hurt my feelings because, you know, he's questioning my identity. Maybe that's a good definition then. Maybe it's like proper London stops when you get to somewhere where a friend who lives in, I don't know, Hackney or Peckham would never consider coming for a drink. The interesting thing is how different people have different parameters for what it should be. So, for example, I, I once saw an interview with Hugh Laurie. He was on American TV and um, the guy was interviewing him saying, now you grew up in Oxford, which now of course that's quite close to London, so you surely got to see shows in the West End all the time. And I'm watching it thinking, it's Americans, like all they can think about is how close something is to London. Mm. Oxford's nowhere near London, but you know, on the scale of thousands of miles, I guess it isn't that far away. Yeah, Hugh Laurie follows me on Twitter, by the way. Oh, does he? Wow. That was my, honestly, this is, it's been a crappy year, but that was the best <laughs> thing that happened to me all year was when I realised Hugh Laurie followed me on Twitter. I've got Hugh Grant as well. I've got the coveted double Hugh. Oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah, so, but this is kind of, so like to go to the other extreme, this is something I, I've, I feel when I go to like an American city or something, when like you're in the suburb as an American city, you're somewhere in Long Island, say, and you think, yeah, I know it's not technically, but it is pretty much New York, isn't it? I mean, like from an external perspective, it's you're still very much in the orbit of New York here. Even more so than that is uh, just across the Hudson River. If you're in New Jersey, yeah. Oh now God, they, yeah. Hoboken. They, it's just it's like it is just New York. It's just like. But Americans, New Yorkers particularly, they are obsessed with the idea that New York is only the five boroughs. And despite the fact that New Jersey is within spitting distance, because it's a different state, they refuse to acknowledge that it's part of the same conurbation, and they get really touchy about it much more than we do. Mm. I mean, you compare that to Paris, where they've got an extremely clear divide what is Paris and what is not. Everything inside the ring road, the peripherique, is officially Paris, and everything outside that, despite the fact that when you look at it from space, of course it's Paris, they don't call it Paris. It's, you know, they, they look at their suburbs very differently from how we do. Something I noticed doing research for the video about where does London stop is that London is unusual for a big city. It doesn't really have a clear edge when you look at it from space. It sputters out gradually. Whereas a lot of other big cities, they just abruptly stop. That's interesting. Do you think that's the Greenbelt policy? Do you think it's um, the way the city has grown? I mean, what's, do you have any theories? Well, the Greenbelt policy came in after the sputtering out had happened all by itself. Maybe it's something to do with the fact that when you hop over the other side of the Greenbelt, you get a lot of satellite towns, places mm. like Stevenage and Harlow, and that's what gives it the sputtering effect. Maybe. To kind of like draw parallels between like the sort of New Jersey, New York thing... I think if if someone grew up in a city on the other side of the world and came to London, they would not see a particular difference between Enfield and Romford and Woking. No, you've got the same sort of place. And the fact that one of them is the wrong side of the motorway and the official boundary doesn't make... So from that point of view, your Woking man is kind of right, isn't he? The thing is, he's absolutely right that he's entitled to feel like a Londoner. You know, if you... I mean, he was arguing correctly that you can actually commute to Waterloo quicker from Woking than you can from Enfield, where I'm from. So, you know, he might claim he has more of a right to call himself a cultural Londoner than I do. 
but of course he was wrong about the actual boundary but this is where it's interesting this sort of the Londonness of a place mm. is entirely in your head so I've become less of a purist about this as I've got older because I used to be like, yeah, Greater London is the boundary. Yeah. And I now think that's, you know, officially that's true. But I sort of think that's nonsense in that there's like... So my favourite example of this is there is two semi-detached houses in the uh, Buckhurst Hill. Uh, Buckhurst Hill kind of Woodford area just on the northeastern fringes of London. And one of these houses is in the London Borough of Redbridge, and the other is in the Essex Borough of Epping Forest. Oh, really? They actually they put the divide between a semi-detached the pair of houses? I mean, like, it's because the divide is older than the building. And yeah, it's of just course. where they happen to put the building. But it does mean... And you can tell this from the street sign, the, the fact that they've clearly been tarmacked on different schedules and so on. But you can tell the boundary runs right through this house. So these guys share a party wall, and yet one of them is in London and one of them isn't. And at that point, I kind of think that, you know, it's the official boundary is a bit silly. We've been looking, so the latest video we've been working on is about why the London borough boundaries are where they are. It's, uh, the video will be called, Why Are There 32 Boroughs? And we found examples like this everywhere. And the thing that's really fascinating to me is that a lot of those borough boundaries They've been around for, in some cases, hundreds of years. Mm. And the buildings that come afterwards... parish boundaries a lot of the time. A lot of them are, yeah. yeah. And the buildings that have come afterwards, they don't acknowledge it at all. So there's a boundary that doesn't exist anymore between the old metropolitan boroughs of Hoban and St Pancras, which are now both part of Camden. But it used to run diagonally through some streets around Russell Square. And obviously these buildings were built after the parish boundaries when it was empty fields. And no attention was paid at all to, you know, where the boundaries would be. That's amazing. I mean, for a certain definition of amazing. For, for, sky <laughs> for people like us, it's for, amazing, for, yeah. For skylines, that's amazing. But this is why I've kind of, like, decided that actually the Greater London boundary thing is a bit silly. In a practical, in a sort of economic footprint sense, I kind of believe in a bigger London. Yeah, I think in the same way that when they decided in the early 60s that the original county of London that was in a shape of a rhinoceros, mm -hmm. they decided that had long gone out of date and we needed to redraw what counts as London or not, you know, for government purposes. Should we be looking at those borders again? And should we now realise that Greater London, as it was drawn up in 1965, what is the actual purpose of Greater London? Is it people who need to be able to vote for the mayor and the assembly because it affects their commute? Because the sphere of influence of London mm. is so much bigger than just Greater London. I mean, there is a danger that if we do a bigger Greater London, it's more likely to vote for a Tory mayor. But well, that was the original yeah. reason they set it. I'm, something I'm annoyed about is that something we missed in our research is that that was the main reason that Greater London was created. It was in order to make it more likely that the Tories could get in, and it worked. Yeah. Have you Are you familiar with the Herbert Commission? Which I, we're very familiar, yeah. So this, this might be another one of my articles you found in your research, but like I did literally, I was looking at a list of the 52 boroughs proposed by the Herbert Commission in the early 60s, which was looking into how they could redesign London governance. So it came up with this list of 52 boroughs, some of which are kind of like the ones we've got divided into multiple pieces, some of which kind of overlap but some of which ended up not included in Greater London. I was looking at this list, trying to visualise what a map of them would look like, and I just couldn't do it. So I started trying to make one. Like I got some sort of blank maps from Wikipedia and started colouring it in and so on. And I finally finished it, and I looked up, and it was 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> um, it's like, well, I guess I'd better publish this on City Metrics since I've done the bloody work, and that's, that's why I have this job. I mean, if it makes you feel better, I did spend quite a long time staring at that map. Good. I'm glad somebody did. That's, that makes it all worthwhile. Jay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been fantastic to speak thank to you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, and like, if people want to sort of check out your, your videos, where should they go? Search my name, Jay Foreman, on YouTube. And I'm also on Twitter, at Jay Foreman. Okay, fantastic. 
And um, how could I maybe get some of your half a million subscribers, do you think? If you keep slugging at it for 10 years like I did, that, that should do the trick. Okay, happy Christmas, everyone. <laughs> happy Christmas. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from Citymetric, the new statesman city site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show, and I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.